You're listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Uh, Dr. Ken Matthews is our leader and speaker tonight. Uh, it's always interesting seeing your professors years later because I remember, Dr. Matthews, you were my first Beeson class because it was an 8 o'clock class on that first morning. So it was my first class. I had studied business in undergrad, and so the first time I was doing theology of any kind was Dr. Matthew's class. I'm certain I was a very average student. I got better as time went on, uh, <laughs> but I was a very average student. And I do remember this, that you have uh, in the hermeneutics class, everyone uh, gets a chance to share their testimony at the beginning. And the day I was supposed to do it, I was late, and I still carry that guilt, and I missed it, and I apologize. It feels so much better to say that out loud. So, uh, thank you very much. But uh, Dr. Matthews was my professor for a biblical hermeneutics class, which is essentially how do we study the Bible? Uh, what it is a living document, is a historical document, is a spiritual document. How do we study it? And it was a fantastic class, and we're going to get a little glimpse of that this evening. Before we start, I'd like for us to stand together, read a passage of Scripture together, and then I'll pray for us. So we're going to read Hebrews 4.12, and let's read together. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lead us tonight, that your Holy Spirit would be here uh, teaching us, inspiring us, Father, that we would talk and study and think about your word and how you've revealed yourself to us through it. Be with Dr. Matthews at this time in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Maybe seated. Thank you, Jacob. And uh, I really had not remembered all of that. So <laughs> I'm glad you feel better. Uh, how to read the Bible. And then I've added for a change. And the reason is because the Bible is not designed for information alone, but for transformation. The Bible cannot be read in a perspective of just a sense of neutrality because it's making claims. It forces you to make a decision about whether you're going to accept its message or not. When it comes to Christianity, you're all in or you're not in. Two feet in, you can't put one foot in and leave one foot out. <laughs> the Bible will not accept that. So if we are to read the Bible as it was intended to be read, as it should be read, then we need to understand that the Bible is a practical way in which God has chosen to transform us. And we just had a month of focus on transformed lives. When it comes to uh, ancient authors and today's readers, in this first point, the idea of information transformation leads us to talk about this relationship between the ancient authors and you as a reader of the Bible. And it's remarkable to contemplate seeing how that the antiquity of the authors so long ago, do they really have anything to say that's living, that is dynamic, and that is transformative? And so what I'd like to talk about is how can a God who is infinite speak to men and women who are finite? How can a God who is not corporeal, he's spirit, speak to men and women who are, of course, of body, of material, as well as of spirit and soul? How does this connection take place? Well, in a word, we will find that God has chosen to reveal his mind. Not all of his mind, but that which is required in order for him 
to enter into a loving relationship with us. So when we think about the connection, we need to think in terms of a relationship God wants with us. Now, in order for him to do this, to make this connection, he's got to provide a means whereby we can understand his message so that we can grasp and be convinced of, convicted of, and so that we can embrace his message. So God has chosen to condescend, to lower himself, to use human language in order to convey in a way that we can understand God's mind. It's not that far different than the analogy we could use of Christ himself, that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And, of course, if he had not come as we are in body, in human mind and will and spirit, then how would we recognize him? (laughs) How would we know? And so just as God uses the written word to reveal his mind, he has sent his only begotten son into the world who became human in order to reveal to us the Father. And this is what Jesus Christ has done in a sense, you can think of it this way, that, that God in Jesus Christ, the Son of God in particular, stepped out of himself and took to himself a human nature so that you have the divine and you have the human. Two hands. When we put them together, what have I formed? When I do this, what do you say to yourself? What is Ken doing? He's praying. You see, two different things are brought together to form a single identity. And that is the uniqueness of the Son of God in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Same thing with the Bible. God, the divine word, has chosen to speak through human words. And the consequence is a uniquely authored work that is co-authored. Co-authored. You have God's word using men and women's words to convey God's thought, God's message in human language that we can understand and we can grasp. So that's uh, under ancient authors and today's readers. That's the first thing I want us to think about is the divine word in human words. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 we find that the Apostle Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Another way of translating that is all Scripture is breathed out by God. We usually think of inspiration. Inspiration is drawing in. But this means expiration. Breathing out onto the pages of Scripture, his word, his thought, his mind. And we learned that all Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, for the purpose. See, it's very practical. It's designed to instruct, to reproof, to correct, 
and also to teach the way of righteousness so that men and women would be thoroughly equipped for the purpose of the ministry. Now, that's the divine word. And when we think of the divine word, then we must understand that the ultimate author of Scripture is spoken in such a way that the Bible is a spiritual book and, as we'll see, requires a spiritual reading of Scripture. Now, there's another passage. Let's talk about the human words. This is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Now, it's striking that Peter says in that chapter, We are witnesses to the glory that was revealed in Jesus Christ. And what he's talking about is that transfiguration. Where if you remember on Mount Transfiguration, his face and his clothing turned glowingly, effervescently white. He says, we witness that. Sometimes don't you think to yourself, oh, I wish I had been there with Jesus and walked with him and talked with him <laughs> along the way for three years. Yes, we all wish that, and that'd be a grand thing. But Peter says right after that, we have a more sure word. You have, all of us, with access to the mind of God in Scripture, a more sure word than even if you had walked and talked with Jesus. And this is because we are told there by Peter that the Holy Spirit bore, carried the authors of Scripture. That's the human words. What we're saying is this, that God so superintended and supervised the lives of men and women he so prepared them so that when they penned Holy Scripture, they wrote exactly what he wanted to be written. And it is remarkable that he used men and women from different backgrounds, vastly different backgrounds. Some were professional, some were craftsmen, some were at court, some were in the fields. Some were highly trained. Some had no education. And on and on we inscribed such diversity across, well, the earliest time the Bible was written, the opening books, was 1,500 years before Christ. The last composition, Revelation, somewhere between 70 and 90 A.D. That's a long period of time with different settings, different political educational backgrounds and settings. So God was engaged in the lives of these men and women to the extent that they wrote exactly what he wanted them to write. So this means that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. <laughs> and when God speaks, Scripture speaks. Now, let me go on to say that the reason why this bridge, this great chasm between the infinite God, holy and majestic and awesome in every way, and we puny little folk, <laughs> is because we are created for that relationship, for that connection. It's called the image of God. Every man and woman has been created in his image for the purpose of that relationship. So from the get-go, he has equipped us, he's readied us for him to reveal his mind, to reveal himself. So when it comes to reading the Bible, as I look at the Bible, I want to ask myself this question. I want to ask, is the Bible a window or is it a mirror? 
is it a window or is it a mirror? Think about that for a moment. If it is a window, I'm looking through the text to hear, to receive the intention of the author. That's my task. That's the goal of proper interpretation because I want to hear from God. And so I look through the text. That's the depository of God's thoughts for me to think after him. If it is a mirror, then what's happening is I bring myself to the text and instead of listening to what God has to say, I choose to impose on the text what I think because in the text I see myself. And the difference is, do you draw out the meaning of the text or do you are, are you imposing meaning on the text? Every person comes to the Bible with, shall we say, baggage. You come to the Bible as a result of your own experiences and your own knowledge. And what we have to do is is in terms of application bring that, but not in terms of understanding and interpretation because we don't want to end up rewriting the meaning of the Bible. So what we have to do is be guarded when we come to interpreting the Bible and that we don't bring to the Bible an exterior agenda that satisfies our curiosity or our intention. So we don't want to be naive about that when it comes to being interpreters of the Bible. Well, how are we going to play by the rules? If you're going to communicate to someone, you've got to communicate in a way that the two of you can have that communication. There's got to be some assumptions at work. And that's what I mean by playing by the rules. See, there's a difference between playing chess and checkers. Most of us know that. But did you know, you know the board is the same. So if you play chess by the rules of checkers or vice versa, you make a real mess of it. You can say you're playing by rules, but they're not correct rules. Now, everybody in here is an interpreter of the Bible. I don't want to assume that, well, you take this session and next session and you walk out and you say, hey, I'm an interpreter now of the Bible. No, we're all interpreters of the Bible. In fact, we can't function without interpreting all kinds of signals that we process, written and oral and visual and the like. So what I'm saying here is that we're going to work at being better interpreters. And all of us can work toward that end. So what we're going to do is talk now about the three major principles for interpretation. And Jacob and others here who have had my class, remember I forewarned you at the 2 a.m. phone call, if I ask you what are the three major principles for interpretation, just you're going to just spit it out. The first principle is you have to interpret by context. The second major principle is context. Does anybody here know what the third principle is? Context. Context, context, context. That is how we start off understanding that we don't want to come to the text with a pretext. See, that's when we impose meaning. But we want to come to a text in light of its context because it's in context that you get meaning. Now, 
Uh, there's a young man that lives down the street, and, and we get together at my house, and he helps me. He works in the lawn, and we do some other things together. So uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon was our appointed time, and he sends me a little text message. And this text message said, O-M-W. Now, if you're a, a techie kind of text person, you know what that means. Well, I'm not that kind of person. But it only took me a second because, you see, I had a context. First of all, I knew English language. That helped. <laughs> but well, I had a context, didn't I? On my way. <laughs> and when it comes to any interpretation, it's context that makes the difference in a correct or incorrect interpretation. So when it comes to what we're looking at in terms of context, 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 that little ditty is actually helpful because I'm trying to reinforce the notion. But also, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, there are three major contexts that we need to take into account. The first one you probably know as Bible backgrounds. It's the historical context. The historical context actually answers historical questions. Who wrote it? When was it written? To whom was it written? Why was it written? What is it that the author wanted to achieve? Was it something to believe? Was it something to act upon? such as to change behavior. What is at work historically? What's the purpose? All that background information. You have to put on your history hat when it comes to Bible interpretation. The second is literary. See, the Bible is literature. And when the authors of Scripture wrote the Bible, they knew they were writing literature. And so they were self-consciously writing literature. And they chose the delivery system, the kind of literature. So we need to remember then that when it comes to interpreting the literature, you have to look at the near context and then look Beyond the near context, well, you could actually start with words. <laughs> words, phrases, clauses, sentences, sentences make up paragraphs, paragraphs make up sections, sections make up chapters, chapters make up books, books make up, and on and on and on. It's like an accordion. It just moves back and forward. And also you need to remember that the choice of the literature will give you whether it's checkers or whether it's chess. Because you don't want to interpret a game of checkers by the rules of chess. Each kind of literature has its own rules of reading. Now, this is not a mystery. We all know this because we use categories when it comes to any kind of entertainment like, well, movies. It's amazing how many different kinds. What, what do we have? We have dramas. We have comedies. We have documentaries. We have sci-fi. We have fantasy. We have musicals. I think they even have a category. Didn't they have one called horror? Yeah, horror. And then, of course, in literature you have, what, novels, plays, I guess comedies as well. What else do you have? Diaries, histories. Yes, <laughs> that's right. A variety of kind. And each has its own rules, doesn't it? I'm not sure blogs have any rules, but anyways. So... Uh, when it comes to the Bible, as you can see below, where it has rules for reading, law, prophecy, and so forth on that handout, 
These are the delivery systems I've chosen for us to look at, see what we get to tonight, and then we'll do the rest of it next time. Because communication involves content and packaging. Content has got to be packaged in order for it to be received. And there are tips, there are hints when it comes to how you interpret the literature. Here's one. Very common one. Once upon a time. Eh? That's a hint, isn't it? Or just if you were to, on your on your phone, I suppose, or your uh, 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 newspaper, if we still do any of that, if it starts off with AP, just a capital A and capital P, what does that mean? Associated Press. There's a difference supposedly, between that and once upon a time. So we get these hints. Uh, for example, if if I get a letter, I open it up, and uh, it says, Dear Kenneth Allen Matthews. I know that's not coming from a real close friend. If it says, Dear Kenneth, I know it's somebody who's pretending to be a friend. <laughs> if it says dear Ken yeah, I might spend a little more time with it but what if it said dear Kenny I say this person must be very old <laughs> so we have these hints at work already and we just need to be brought up to speed on how it is that the ancient writers use the various kinds of literature in order to communicate the message, to see how the package enhances the message. The third context, theological. We have to come to the Bible after our um, historical hat, our literary hat, and then we put on our theological hat in order to interpret that passage in the context of the whole Bible so that when we read the Old Testament we're looking forward to the new so you read that forward if you're reading the New Testament you got to read it backward <laughs> you've got to look at what has preceded let me take for example the sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. That needs to be understood in light of what we learn from the New Testament. You have to look forward. You go to the book of Hebrews, and there's a great deal of attention explaining the forecasting, the foreshadowing of what the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of that symbolized or suggested. And, of course, it's found in Jesus Christ. So that means you're reading forward. But if you start off in the book of Hebrews and you read those chapters, what does it force you to do? If you don't know what this is all about because you're from Athens <laughs> or you're from Rome, later on from some other place at far distant land and you didn't know about that you didn't have that in your background well you're just going to have to come up to speed you're going to have to be tutored in some way if you don't have access to the old testament then go down to the local synagogue and have an interview with about uh how this would work in old testament settings so see you have to read backward Let's go to the next point, the art of understanding words. When it comes to words, there's no mystery about a word. We, how do you define a word in English? You define it by usage. You don't do it by where the word came from. We call it etymology, the source of the word. You know, your English word, just think of all the words that you have in your vocabulary. Do you really know where those words came from? Was it Latin? Was it Greek? Was it French? Was it German? 
Was it Chinese? Was it Hebrew? Where did those words come from? Well, you don't, you don't really, you don't need to know that. In fact, you don't even want to know that because it would distract you. How is a word defined? It's defined in terms of usage. So words are elastic depending upon context, how the word is used. In our language today, how about that e highly elastic word, love? <laughs> how we love to use the word love. And there's so many ways in which that word can be used. And how do you know the difference between love and affection and preference? Only by context. Some people say, of course, I, I love my spouse. Or there's a different kind of love, a nuanced love. Love for another family member. Say, in my case, a grandchild. And so forth. Or there's brotherly love like we have here in our community of faith. Some of us would even say, I love chocolate. All of these kinds of usages are determined by context. Same thing's going on in the Bible. You can have the same word, and I'll use the word love, but can be used in many different ways. Love for God, for example. Or like when God says in Deuteronomy to Israel, I loved your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I loved your fathers, and I chose them and their descendants to give promises. Now, what does love mean there? It means elective love, making a choice. And then, of course, there's the notion of affection that a person would have for another person. And it's also used for uh, sexual relations, although minimally. Usually the terms that are used are relational, like Adam knew his wife Eve, the, the word knowledge. Nonetheless, love is very broad, and so you have to... Be sensitive to that. You can't take a word and just drop it in any and everywhere. You have to look at the context. Well, our time is uh, almost gone with us, but I'm going to take a few more minutes to talk a little bit about, that's right, the most difficult one I could have chosen, law. Law. What are the rules for interpreting law? So what I have to do is to talk to you about the difference between ancient law and contemporary law. Because contemporary law, what do we think of? We think of lawmakers, or we probably do. And we think of courts, and we think of legislatures, and uh, things of that sort. When it comes to law... In the Old Testament, law reflects what is really already practiced. But what it does is it, it confirms the norms of that particular society. So the law is actually a reflection of what that society values. Let me give you an example. When you take the biblical law and contrast it with the law codes that we know of from the ancient Near East. Those law codes of the ancient Near East, they put value more so on property than they do on persons. Not so in the biblical law. It places a greater value on persons. And in particular, if there's any bias or prejudice to be found, in the law, it's toward the under, what we call the underclass, the widow, the orphan, these kind of folks. So that's what I mean by it has to reflect the norms of society. Let me give you uh, how the law would work then in the Bible. 
I like to use the expression covenant law. Covenant law. Because the law codes in the Bible, and they're found, of course, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're collections of laws. These laws are within a broader framework of covenant. You have to think of it as covenant law. You have a covenant, and it's made up of ten commandments. Deuteronomy likes to call it the ten words. These are the ten commandments found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And then I like to think of it as policy. It's the governing policy. All the specific laws, and there are many of them, but not exhaustive. You you could think of other scenarios that those laws don't address. They're selective, probably representative. Those laws reflect the policy. You have the policy, but then the laws implement the policy. So, for example... When it comes to, say, thou shalt not, really the better translation, thou shalt not murder, you shall not murder, well, you've got to think about, well, what constitutes murder? You see, there are different levels of homicide. There's what we call premeditated first-degree homicide. And then there is the lesser degree of homicide. It is homicide. We call it manslaughter. And the penalty is different for each kind of taking of life. Is it premeditated, intentional, malicious, or was there an accident? And there are a number of laws that define the difference between murder and manslaughter. So when it comes to the implementation of policy, you will have these laws reflecting the covenant commitment. What the covenant does is that it forms a relationship. And what the laws do regulates that relationship. How is that relationship between an infinite holy God and a sinful people going to be uh, possible and is going to continue. And that's what the laws achieve for us. When it comes to a Christian reading of the law, as you know, the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 verse 4 says that the law has met its goal. The law has met its end. And so as a consequence, we are operating under a new covenant. The old covenant was written on stone. It's out here. It's external. We conform to those Ten Commandments. But oh me. Oh dear. I find myself, I don't always conform to the Ten Commandments. I say to my students from time to time, you just make up any ten laws you want to make up. You get to be God for a day. Come up with the ten laws you think for sure you can keep every day. You know what will happen. Law number one, eat chocolate every day. But there will be times when you won't choose to eat chocolate for whatever reason, maybe a good reason. Any ten laws that we make, we will transgress because the laws on stone are not native or inherent within me. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. You see, God has written, for those of us who are Christians, his law on our hearts. And so as a consequence, he has transformed us into covenant keepers. You know, if you want to have covenant keepers, you've got to make covenant keepers. 
And now I have the capacity to obey God because of the gift of his Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul likes to talk about the law of love, the royal law, the law of the Spirit, the law of Christ. This is what the work of the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. Now, when we come to reading those laws in the Old Testament, what we need to look for is not the form, but we've got to look for the underlying message and see where that message, where that theological purpose has a correspondence under the new covenant. The law is written in my heart. All of the Ten Commandments are recited again in the New Testament except one. A little trivia here. And that is to keep the Sabbath. We don't keep the Sabbath. That's the seventh day. 1 Corinthians 16 and other hints tell us, as well as church tradition, we observe the first day. And I think probably in light of Easter, everybody knows why. <laughs> now, what's at work here? You have to look at the purpose, the function, the message of the Sabbath. And when you read it, it explains, contextually, it explains that it is a day of worship. When it comes to the first day, what's its function? What's its purpose? Worship. It takes on a different form. Our offerings, our sacrifices of those of love and commitment and righteousness. So that's what I'm speaking of, that when you read the Old Testament's laws, you intuitively know, I don't think I work under this system. But yet, like Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. And when you read the laws, you still can hear there's something here speaking to me. I've got to pay attention to this. And where you look for that is with the underlying message or principle of the law. How about some questions? Anybody want to ask some questions? Oh, here's our moderator. Do you want to... How about some questions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Matthews. We're going to have uh, plenty of time for questions. Uh, I will give you the option. If you know that you're going to discuss the question next week, you're welcome to punt till next week if you like to. But uh, beyond that, okay. you'll be forced to answer Okay, everything. all right. Forced. So, all right, right. Uh, I don't know the etymology of force, but it's painful. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Uh, so at this time, if you have a question, please feel free to ask. And if you'll restate the question so that we'll have okay. it for the podcast. Yes. You're a courageous man. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, one thing I've noticed myself is that they usually are not uh, very useful when they tell stories. They just give you the inside. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they exaggerate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're not like that, of course. No, 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 no way. We're totally objective. Definitely, yes. And, uh, and, of course, they're not children in the sense that I, I started the question, but, um, but perhaps they're children. Actually, we call them the children of Israel, right? They also, yes. Um, I mean, they have their own biases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yes. Yeah. The question is raised about when can I say the authors? Is that what you have in mind? Yeah, I mean, the authors, when they're writing, do they have a certain agenda or a bias or a purpose that colors and shades what they have to say? Yes, they do. <laughs> Indeed. What they are doing is not telling a political history. They're not telling even the history of Israel's religion. There's is an intentional shaping of the literature and the message that is a proclamation because what they are showing is God's viewpoint. So to that degree, yes, they are reflecting God's viewpoint. Now, how do they do that? Well, they have to be using the forms. They have to be using the language that they understand and that their audience will understand. So we use a word that's pretty pejorative when we talk about propaganda. <laughs> that's not a good word, is it? So I'm not going to say they were using propaganda, but they were decidingly selecting certain events and describing certain events in order to drive home their message. And they have to, uh, God has to speak at a level that the people would understand. Let me just give you a, a, a simple explanation of how this would occur. Do you remember when it came to constructing the temple that Solomon hired Phoenician artisans, Phoenician workers? to come and to make the stones without making noise that were used for building the temple. Now, why would he do that? It's because the temple, if you look at the temples of that time, the temple of Israel was very much like the temples of the Phoenicians. And so God used a form that the people were familiar with so that they would be able to understand what we mean by the house of God, the place of God. Another question? Yes. Yeah, well, it's because it's in Greek, it's because it's in Latin, it's because it's in Syriac, it's because it's in every language in history. In other words, it's the best attested ancient documents that we know of. We have thousands of letters, I shouldn't say that, thousands of documents from the ancient Near East that are of the New Testament. In fact, we almost have too much. And so we might say we reject it, but it is a highly reliable witness. And that's really what the Bible is. It's a witness. Now, are you going to accept the witness or not accept the witness? Then, of course, you can move into um, the objective standards of is this a reliable witness, just like one would go into a court and test a witness. And then you would go into the subject of dimension. And that is the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer confirms that this is the Word of God. And so the Holy Spirit 
In 1 Corinthians 2, lays this out, the whole chapter, in particular, verse 12, that God has given us the Spirit so that we might know the mind of God, so that when we read the mind of God, that is the Scripture, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And that was in Jacob's prayer, 1 John. He is our teacher. You say, well, Dr. Matthews, what are you doing up here? He has given the church pastor teachers to help in that process. But you're not dependent upon me. So this person who rejects the scripture for whatever reason does not have that internal witness. And the two work together. The objective witness, the reliability of scripture, it can be tested, it can be tried. And then the uh, internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit just loves what he has to say. And when you read his work, he'll speak to your heart. So, um, of course, it depends on that person and so forth. But when I run across somebody who complains about the Bible, I gently say, well, um, have you read it? And it's amazing. They haven't. Or very little of it. So I tell you what, let's make a deal. You give me something to read, and I'll give you something to read. That's a good way to approach it. And so I don't know what they would give you. Maybe Huckleberry Finn. I have no idea. But you can give them, say, why don't you read the Gospel of John? It's not that long. You can do it in one sitting or just take your time and read through it. Now, what's happening there is John was written so that people might believe. And so when they start reading John, they're opening themselves up to the voice of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And if God so chooses, he'll convince them of the reality and truthfulness of the Holy Scriptures and its message. Are you going to keep going, or are we about done? Yes. I think that probably the notion. Hmm? Oh, yes. Repeat the question. What is the greatest hindrance today for the present generation regarding accepting the truthfulness, the message of Scripture? Okay. Well, I really think what it amounts to is the sense that you're okay and I'm okay. You have your understanding interpretation and I have my understanding interpretation. So don't get on me about mine. And it's the relativizing of authority and truth. There, I think, is the biggest hurdle, frankly. That's not the way they function in any other area of life. And that they are grossly and sadly inconsistent. And they're treating the Bible unfairly. So, for example, um, not always, but most of the time we keep the speed limit. And when the officer turns us to the side and looks into the window, says, you're going too fast. We say, well, you have your speed limit. I've got my speed limit. <laughs> Who are you to say, you know, I can't go the way I want to go. But if you think about it, that's not the way they function in any other area of life. Why is it that they segregate worldview? That's what it amounts to. You have your worldview, I have my worldview. Well, another answer to that is, I like my worldview better than your worldview because my worldview fits. Your worldview doesn't make any sense. And if I'm going to invest my life in my destiny in a 
worldview, what the you know the lenses, then uh, I want one that's self-consistent, that's coherent, that makes some sense. That's another response. Yes. You know, that's that's really tough. <laughs> I think one way is if you can't oh, repeat the question. You see why I bring her along? <laughs> uh, she, um the question is what are some ways in which we can guard ourselves against pretext that is bringing to the Bible our own personal agenda? Okay. Number one is you've already got it in your back pocket. See, many people don't are not even aware of it, but at least you're aware of it, and that's a good start. Number two is use different translations. Use different translations, and it's not really expensive anymore. You can go to free apps. I'm not sure what that means, but I say it for my younger people. I really think I'm cool. But there's something out there called apps, and there's one called Gateway. And it'll give you a whole wide range of Bible translations. Why do I say that? It's because if you get to a favorite Bible translation, you get locked into it, and you begin to anticipate what it says. But if you read devotionally or for study different translations it'll express it differently and it'll cause you to engage more and you won't be on default to engage more i would say and then do of course all that background study recognize that they have a different culture than we have and on the handout where i have toolbox how can you discover that well Really, a good way of doing it is use these Bible dictionaries on the reverse side of that page. Bible dictionaries, and these are all one-volume Bible dictionaries. So, for example, if you're reading uh, some aspect, let's say an agrarian aspect of what does it mean to winnow, I mean, I am from the urban setting. I have no idea what goes on in farm life, but I've had to learn. Or what does it mean to be fishing in the Sea of Galilee? See, those types of cultural settings. Well, all you have to do is look these things up, and it's alphabetical. And if you want to learn about Satan, look under S, and there you'll have an article on Satan. So that will help you immensely. And then on this front sign... It says these various versions, but notice it says study Bible. It's going to cost you a little bit more money, but we're Americans. We can afford these things, and it's worth the investment because the study Bible will have just that. It's a Bible with notes that will bring you up to speed on these cultural backgrounds and settings, and there's Usually now, I mean, it's gone way out there, but there's a lengthy introduction. You'll have charts, you'll have graphs, it's a multicolor even. And so um, that is a great advantage that we have. That's another way. Uh, there may well be others. They're not on my head right now. Okay. Let's give a hand to Dr. Matthews and Thank appreciation. You. We all think you're very cool. Yeah, I know, I know. Cool. And, you know, we've recycled that. Yes. And, and back in the 50s and 60s, we were cool. Yeah. And we got cool again. You're back to cool again. Yeah. That's, great. That's great. My, wife, like, my yeah. wife, Suzanne, and I end up quoting you a good bit because oftentimes people will ask us, which version of the Bible should I get? Which translation? Oh, yeah. And we always say, Dr. Matthew says, the one you read. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's the best translation, yeah. the one that yeah, you read. Yeah, the best translation is the one you will read. Yes. So whatever it is, if you're reading it, stick with it. That's great. 
we have about 10 minutes. Uh, let's get in groups of five to eight people. That's a big range. I think you can figure five to eight people. And we're going to answer questions two, three, nine, and 20. You may, got, may not get to all of them, but this will be a good chance to have some conversation and let this hit, uh, hit home. I will close this in just a few minutes. If you have to step out for choir or otherwise, you're welcome to do so at this time. You have about 10 minutes. All right, friends, we're going uh, to reconvene and close together in prayer. I imagine everyone got a chance to answer every question because I know that's how it works. Uh, but no, I am thankful for your presence tonight and encourage you to come back next week. These are important conversations to have, especially if we've been given the Bible and encouraged to read it and hear, as Dr. Matthew says, the mind of God. We can have these conversations, and thanks for joining us in that conversation tonight. Uh, we're going to close with a short prayer uh, to be read together. If you'll stand with me and uh, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great night, everyone. Great to see you.